Hey guys, welcome to What Drives Her, the podcast that talks to women who are changing the automotive industry from the inside. You just have me today. Connie is out at the Toronto Auto Show this week, but I'm really excited to bring you our guest today, Cheryl Thompson from the Center for Automotive Diversity, Inclusion and Advancement, and Linda Talaferro, whose day job is at ZF as a, the Vice President of Quality, and her passion project is TEE, The Extra Effort, which is a coaching company that she started to help other women like her build careers, especially in automotive. Now, DEI is a topic that has been battled around, and right now it's sort of in the political crosshairs, but should it be? And has it always been? Is it really a new idea or is it something that we've only heard about the last few years? These ladies are going to answer these questions and more and share with you. I want you to stick through and listen because there's some really great advice that they both have that will help you build your career, be a better teammate to everyone, and some very specific ideas or very specific guidance on how you can fill in the missing gaps in your uh, in your own personal work structure, career structure to help you get what it is that you want. So please help me welcome Cheryl Thompson and Linda Talaferro. So please welcome our guest today, Cheryl Thompson from Cadia and Linda Talaferro, who works for ZF, but has her own entity as well. I will let her talk about that. Welcome, ladies. Thank you, Scotty. So Thank you, Scotty. It's started, awesome to be here. It's so great to have you both here. Before we get started, would you both give a quick overview of who you are, what you do, and how you got to the job where you are, and specifically talk about your passion projects, which for both of you, passion and uh, and uh, your job are very intertwined, and that is a really exciting thing. Um, Linda, why don't you start? Sure. Again, Scott, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I currently, my professional side of my life, I will say, is with ZF, Vice President of Global Quality for the Chassis Solutions Division. Really excited to be part of that division. We own everything from one bumper, one end of your vehicle to the other. Uh, we are leaders in that space. Uh, also too, the other part of my life is, as you mentioned, my entity is the T the Extra Effort. It's a career advisory firm where I focus on assisting black and brown women and really strengthening their emotional intelligence and building executive presence. And like I, I often say, help them get out of their own way so that they can be successful in their careers in spite of the systemic challenges, which I know we're gonna to discuss today. That is really where my passion and heart lie. Uh, it's been something that's been on my heart for years and I launched this business in 2017, actually being spurred by a mentee who said um, that, you know, what you've done for me has been so massive. You really should broaden yourself outside of the four walls of your where you work, or even she met me at the Women of Color Conference, yeah. actually. And so she spawned me to to uh, follow my heart and my, and my passion and start the T, the extra effort. And then lastly, you mentioned a connection, and I do agree with you because it, it, what I love to do for those women 
is also somewhat connected to what I love to do in the auto industry. I'm in quality, right? And so if we think about quality and assuring that the vehicle, any aspect of that vehicle meets your expectations as the end user, keeps you safe, it's the same thing as what I'm doing in the team, right? I'm actually trying to increase the quality of professional life for these black and brown women, such that they can do it in a psychologically safe way and be successful at the same time. So I do I do agree there is a linkage. That's what passionate being passionate about your career is all about, right? Yeah. And Cheryl, yeah. tell us um, tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are and your passion project. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I kind of made my uh, work in the world my passion project. So I spent 31 years at Ford Motor Company, came up through food service. I did a tool and die apprenticeship, and that's what got me into engineering. So being the only woman in many, many rooms um, and on many plant floors, um, I had that lived experience of knowing what it felt like to be underestimated, undervalued, and you know, this feeling that I had more to contribute. And there was almost like this invisible force pulling me out. I remember just being on the phone, putting in my retirement paperwork before I knew what I was doing. Right, I was out there in the world um, trying to get this business started. Um, I also spent a couple of years at a tier one supplier. So, you know, me as a, as a female having this experience is one thing, but I'll never forget a conversation I was having for a gentleman that worked for me. And it was a, a black gentleman. And he, he was telling me just some frustration that he was having in a meeting. And he, he was saying, you know, I feel like when I speak up, my, co my competence is questioned or challenged, right? Or, you know, the same things that women face in meetings, our voices maybe not being heard, raising an idea, and then someone else kind of claims it as their own. And I looked at him and I said, wow, I thought that only happened to women. And he said, no. So I, that really opened my world to, to look at others and the lived experiences they were having. We're not all having the lived, same lived experience. So that's what got me really passionate about starting CADIA, Center for Automotive Diversity, Inclusion and Advancement. And that is why I do the work in the world, you know, and I just keep trying to raise that bar little by little by little. You know, it's funny you, you tell that story and I, I have a similar one that I'll share. Um, that was such an eye-opener. Uh, when I first started this job, so it was a little over, it was about 10 years ago, um, I was at the Detroit Auto Show with a group of journalists, and we're walking through the show as a, as a group, and this Black gentleman turned to me and he said, you know, you and I were just the same. <laughs> and I was like, well, we couldn't look more different, <laughs> but what do you mean? And he said, we have exactly the same challenges. And he said, and then he said, black women have more challenges than you and I do. And it, it was something that he, he articulated something that I knew to be true. Uh, and I figured like you, Cheryl, I figured it's just me um, battling this, you know, climbing this mountain. Uh, I didn't think everybody else would too. I figured everybody else was ahead of me because you don't know how far behind or ahead you are of the game until you're really in it and you really have that sort of day-by-day um, -day experience, that lived experience, then you really know. So um, so it's great to, to have this conversation with you two. So I'm gonna share one more little story and then I wanna get your, your input on this because I know the, the sort of the headline, but really what I wanna know is the detail. And that is that uh, automotive 
has been DEI or diversified way before diversity was a buzzword in corporate America. And the automotive industry has been uh, developed these best practices to uh, to bring people of color and women to into the executive ranks for you know 40 years. I mean, you look at people like Mary Barra, who is a product of many of these efforts, and so many women who work in high levels in automotive now are there because there were efforts many years ago to bring them up. So tell us. Give us some insight into what that looked like sort of on the ground or in the uh, in these companies. What did they have to do to bring to bring diversity into their organizations those years ago? Linda, do you want to start or or Cheryl to jump off? Yeah, I can offer uh, a little bit just from actually living the experience and then Cheryl, you know, who has been you know, studying and, and working on this for years can give uh, a lot more context, I'm sure, to that. But I could, for me, you know, I've, I started in this in the 80s and, you know, I've seen it really grow to what you just described or such that the Mary Barras exist and then her entire team was made of women leading global operations, leading uh, purchasing and so forth. And what I, what it felt like for me on the ground was this intentionality around recognizing the skills that the women brought, the different thought process and approach to issues, right? Problem solving, uh, the way we handle conflict and so forth. And so really recognizing how that benefited the individual company uh, is what I saw shifting after I started at GM years ago at Delco Moraine in Dayton, Ohio. There would, I would have never thought back then in the 80s that eventually Mary Barra, a woman, would be the CEO. But I believe that it's through that learning experience that the leaders who happen to be white males had. And so I know for me, going through my career from GM to Bosch to BMW and so forth, each of the time I had an opportunity, that opportunity was greater than the, the past one. And even within companies, when I was at Hayes Lemmerts, I moved through Hayes Lemmerts fairly well because of that recognition and because of other people who were willing to say, yes, I see you and here's a door that I will open. Uh, for you. You've raised your hand and I am actually going to open the door. So I, I've, I've experienced that. And I think it's, again, around the intentionality of, of when we're talking about the automotive industry, or, of them to say, look, you know, this is does not necessarily need to continue to be a man's world. Uh, and, and women are bringing great value and, and shifting the narrative and moving the needle quite well. So let's let's just open the door and invite them to the table. Cheryl? Yes, so much goodness there. You know, we look at automotive and it's so large. We've got the supply base, we've got machine tool builders, we've got the OEMs, and then we've got dealerships. And I think dealerships right there are closest to the customer and they should be striving to look like the communities that they serve and they operate in, right? So I think that is, is kind of um, given us some momentum. I think when we think about workforce diversity, I think we can learn a lot about what has been done in the supplier diversity world, right? That has been going on for, for decades and decades. And I remember sitting with a group of supplier diversity professionals and they were talking about positioning 
a, a company with the engineers, right? Because the engineers didn't want to have anything to do with a diverse supplier, but the supplier diversity people were very strategic on how they were positioning that supplier. And I was thinking, wow, you know, the good leaders out there, the advocates, the allies, the sponsors, they do the same thing, right? They position that talent. They're an advocate for someone. You may not even know they're advocating for you behind, you know, behind your back, behind closed doors. So I think um, more awareness out there, being able to talk about the experiences that we're having, you know, we were talking in the beginning about, you know, thinking it was just you. I think myself as a woman, I would imagine others who are underrepresented have had the same experience of isolating because you're trying to self-protect and you think it's only you. But now that we're starting to have these conversations in 2020 and the racial reckoning that we have has helped us be more open to having those conversations, we start to realize, wow, not everyone's having the same experience. So what do we need to do? I think Linda, the work Linda's doing is phenomenal with looking at the individual and what responsibility do I have in this? And then we need to look at the leaders and what responsibility do leaders have to have, you know, like daily, day to day, like who is speaking up in meetings, who's getting interrupted, who's getting talked over, right? All of that. And then um, the systems and the structures, Mm -hmm. like what do we need to put in place to make sure that everyone has that equal opportunity and equal access? So, you know, it's it's a mix of things that we've been doing and we're starting to see some results. You know, our our study that we just did on demographics showed um, improvement in getting women into leadership, but we have a huge gap in getting um, people of color into leadership, right? They're way um, underrepresented there. So there's still a lot of work to do, but some of the things that we've been doing over the last few decades have been working. Um, and you know, nothing ever goes straight up like this. Okay. I think there's a little bit of this, but the trend is is upward. And then the last thing I'll just say is think about the next generation coming into the workplace. We're not even talking Gen Z, we're talking alpha, right? The the ones that are born after 2014, each generation is getting more and more diverse. You know, when you look at race and ethnicity and even um, sexual orientation. So, you know, I'm Gen X myself. I just applaud the Gen Zs and I can't wait to see what comes out of uh, Alpha with, you know, the things that they're willing to tolerate or not willing to tolerate. It's a lot different than my generation. I'll tell you that. It's very more different than mine as a baby boomer. But we think very much about what do we want for our children. And it's interesting that we can, uh, I wonder how many people, because I hear a lot of male executives say this, well, I have daughters and I want my daughters to have every opportunity. And then at the same time, they, you know, sometimes they do, you know, things that are quite puzzling and sometimes they do things that are criminal after they've said, but I have daughters. So, you know, I, I wonder, um, I wonder where people are thinking in terms of not just how I'm doing my job and, and how I'm offering opportunities to people, but what is that, what world am I setting up for my daughters or my children? But, um, just sort of a rhetorical question. But let me ask you this, Cheryl, because you hinted at some data. Can you go a little deeper into that in terms of um, numbers of women and and, uh, and people of color, uh, the changes yes. that have been made, and some of that strata, what that looks like at the entry level and management and VP level? 
Yes, yeah. So, you know, for the last three years, we've been wanting to do this study across demographics. We wanted to know job categories, leadership levels, and education attainment. And for the simple reason that um, Linda mentioned earlier, uh, maybe it was in the pre-chat, about when we look for talent who is diverse, often we get the excuse of, I can't find diverse talent. Or I hear women and minorities, they just don't go into these technical fields, Cheryl. So we really wanted to get that data. There's not a lot out there available from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It just says overall, it doesn't get into the job categories and leadership levels. So we looked at, we called it transportation because we looked at some defense companies, some OEMs, some tier ones, um, companies in mobility and some dealerships. So we looked across all of those. We had 20 companies share their demographic data with us. And then another 20, we they just had their publicly available information out there, right? The EEO1 data that, that goes a little bit further. And we were able to see overall representation for females is 24%, which isn't great, but it's 24%, which the piece that makes me um, optimistic is when we get to the executive level, which is uh, two down from CEO, so setting strategic direction, that's 22%. So the representation at that senior level is on par with the representation of women overall. That's a good sign um, because the things we're doing are paying off. However, I don't know if it's going to be sustainable if we don't start growing that 24%, right? Now, the, the troubling piece of the study is for Black or African-American workers, they're overrepresented, um, especially at the entry level. So overall representation in the workforce is 13% for Black or African-American workers, and automotive, it's 14%. When we look at those entry levels, which is um, operators, laborers, admin, um, it is way overrepresented. But when we get to those senior levels, only 6%. So there's a huge gap there. And then when I look at educational attainment for women and um, underrepresented minorities and um, ethnicities, that is improved. When we look at 20, 2002 to 2022, um, huge gains. More for race and ethnicity, not as much for women, but we're still seeing um, huge gains. Um, so there, there's some bright spots, but there's still a lot of work to do. Now, having that data, it allows us to look at um, career paths. So I'll give you an example, you know, because we've got that heavy representation of Black or African America at that uh, entry level, what are the career paths that we can start creating to help them advance, right? There's a lot of state money out there and workforce development that can be used that I don't think a lot of companies are taking advantage of. And I look at a couple of our tier one suppliers in the Detroit area, right? Detroit is 80% African American. And I look at some of these black led companies, they're doing that. They are developing career paths for those entry level workers. And, and they are you know, having remarkable careers. We need more of that. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Linda, do you wanna to add on to what Cheryl just said about these, uh, these companies and um, especially black owned companies that are making inroads? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very familiar with the one that uh, Cheryl mentioned because uh, I actually was a customer of theirs. Uh, so I worked intimately with them. Uh, and then also too, they were part of our supply chain when I was uh, at another tier one. 
And and it, you know, for me, I'm not surprised that it, that they're black owned and making those inroads. And as Cheryl said, I believe there's a lot to be learned from those companies, uh, and there's more of them. I, I I would offer, and Cheryl, correct me if I'm wrong. There's probably a large, more percentage of black owned companies that aren't doing what those two or three examples are, right? And and so if they would even step forward, take advantage of the grants, take advantage of bringing forward, uh, you know, these opportunities, and then the other companies in an allyship position could learn from them really would make the difference. And, and I'd say this because, you know, a lot of times we're not, as a young black person coming out of a, I have a technical background, mechanical engineer, if I'm coming out of college and I'm interviewing, I'm not seeing anybody that looks like me. Right, so I'm a little reluctant, maybe even to consider going there. But if I maybe, uh, you know, cut my chops in the beginning at a black-owned firm like this one we're mentioning, and really get my confidence level up, what difference that makes for those young individuals in their careers long term? So, very happy to see uh, some of what Cheryl has shared in her um, in in the study that they've done. I would implore more. Uh, to do that because it will make a difference, a great difference for those individuals who are seeking. We have a large conference here in Detroit called, called Women of Color Conference. And I remember the first time I went, it was back in 2015, I think it was, or 2015 or 14, I was being honored. And my gosh, my heart just exploded when I saw, I mean, it was at Cobo Hall and it was hundreds of young women, you know, that coming out of STEM fields are still in uh, in STEM study and they were interviewing and they were there and they're asking all these wonderful questions and showing their, their, their interest and influence. And then when I have companies say, oh, we can't find them. I'm thinking, you're here in Detroit. How about I take you right down to the conference because there's hundreds of them. There's thousands of them. So yes, if we had more companies doing that, more companies even connecting with the, the one that does the Women of Color Conference, we can continue to make the difference. And as Cheryl said, instead of having such a higher percentage of um, black and brown people who are operators on the shop floor, and there's no disrespect for that, they're making a living raising their families, but then allowing those individuals plus new ones to move up in the organization into other levels, that's why how, how that's how we start making that difference. So so um, I want to shift the conversation just slightly and talk about mentorship mm -hmm. um, because there's certainly there are, Formal things companies can do, career path building, um, advanced education, providing time and resources for education, continuing education, things like that. Um, but on the individual level, mentoring is so important. Um, and so I, I wonder if you if if you would each talk a little bit about uh, mentoring that mattered to you in your career growth and then how you mentor. What is your mentoring style right now? Jump ball, who wants it? Okay, I'll, I'll start. Go ahead, Linda. Great, please do. You want me to start? Okay. Yes. Um, so I have been, you know, I've had the uh, privilege to be part of formal mentoring programs in my long career at Ford, right? Lots of great processes and systems in place. But I always found better relationships organically with, with um, you know, people who mentored me. The challenge that that presented is there was a time in my career where I felt like I needed to have a woman mentor me. And, and you know, <laughs> I think you do need someone who can look 
it can be a role model for you. I think you do need someone who looks like you to show you what's possible for, for performance and um, progression. So I think back to, you know, a pivotal time in my career. I was meeting with my manager, he's a white male, and he's telling me I'm ready for that next level. You know, he's like, I think we should start positioning you for a manager role. I think you're ready. I didn't see any other women leading. And back in those days, the environment was a little bit more toxic than it was today. And I thought it was I was going to have to change who I was in order to lead. I thought I was going to have to pound my fist on the table and yell and scream to be a leader. And I said, listen, I don't want to have to change who I, am, who I am. I don't want to have to act like you. And he was wearing these glasses and he looked out his glasses at me and he's like, kid, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll try to get you some help. So he set me up with Linda Cash, who was the executive vice president of manufacturing. And I'm waiting outside of her office to talk to her. And I can hear her on the phone talking to her team. And she's saying, we need to get these engineers home from launch. They haven't been with their families in six months. And I was like, oh, that's how I would be as a leader. Like there was some care and compassion there. And so when I met with Linda, it was like, changed my it rocked my world because it was almost like she was giving me some tough love like don't let yourself be coddled kind of like the work linda you're doing in the personal responsibility right and just seeing such a strong woman lead with care um it, it just really changed my world so finding that mentor who you can relate to is so so important if you feel like you need someone that shares your identity go for it you could grow on to getting different mentors as your career progresses. And I think sometimes we need multiple mentors, but mentorship is extremely important uh, to show you what's possible. Oh, I, I can't agree more, Cheryl. It's, it's, it, it is the difference. And I think it made the difference for me, for sure, in my career. Um, you know, I too would, came up in the industry in a very toxic environment and knew that's not who I wanted to be either as a leader. Uh, but always and had aspirations of that seat so you know there wasn't nothing around me really deterred me it did slow me down for a minute i had some really negative experiences early on but it didn't greatly deter me and it was i will tell you i didn't have the um uh, the examples of anyone that looked like me but there was a gentleman early in my career when i was at delco moraine his james his name was jim menifee and he was a black man who was the gm there the break plant and he was the one that was instrumental in helping me really understand that i had a voice and that i could advocate for myself and that there was no punitive results that would take place of that because i was the young engineer that thought you know let me just work hard keep my head down stay out of trouble because you know, everybody around me has all these titles and no one looks like me except for that man. And it made a difference to me in a very critical time in my career that I attribute today as to who I am as a leader and who I am um, in my role professionally. He made the difference, all the difference in the world. I highly recommend that everyone, I still even have mentors. Now, some people would say, hey, you know, Linda, you're a vice president, why you didn't, I haven't fully arrived. And I think it's dangerous when you believe that you have and you start drinking your own Kool-Aid. No, I still have people that I bounce things off of, that I do a check-in with, 
um, because I, I, I still want to be that leader that's vulnerable, that's passionate, that's, you know, has empathy, everything that Jim showed me earlier in my career in the 80s. So I, I implore you to, to get a mentor. And the company kind of programs are, are okay. Um, I don't really advocate for those that say, okay, Lindy, that's your, you're going to mentor her and they check the box because I do think there needs to be uh, someone that you connect with, right? Like Cheryl said, you know, if another female leader, I've got several mentees uh, at ZF, all women, uh, young black women that I mentor and even women of other ethnicities, but they're women, right? And, and they've reached out and connected to me for that reason. And we have a connection and I always say, hey, let's just have a dialogue see if I'm a fit for you, if you feel comfortable, and then we'll move forward. So I think it's important. Don't just run out and say, oh, he or she should be because of what's on the business card. No, meet that person, see if you connect with them, and then make sure they have your best interest at heart. Because what you want them to be able to do is not always tell you what you need to hear, right? Um, but maybe give you some honest, you know, really honest feedback and be able to share the areas that they were weak in and how they grew, you know, that they weren't always perfect. I think those are great mentors. And I implore my clients to have them. A lot of them say they have what they call a board of directors, a couple of people at work, some people outside of work. And I love that, you know, absolutely. So I, I, I'm glad you brought it up, Scotty, because I do believe that it will make a great difference in one's career when they, understand the value of mentorship and then they seek to have that in their life. I find it valuable to get input from people who are younger than me yeah. and are in a different place uh, navigating often the same things I'm navigating but uh, in, a, in a more maybe a more digital native way or more in tune with uh, how things work from their experience, uh, yes. being new and, and younger, um, because they're, they know things that I don't know. And uh, well, I find that often those, those people are really good ones to ask because they have that very fresh insight. But before we move on to my next question, will you each talk a little bit about your own mentoring style, mentoring other people? Linda, why don't you start? Yeah, so what I do, I mentioned a little bit of it as I like to have dialogue at first, make sure there's a connection. And then because I am such a direct person, I mean, this is my in my nature, I always mention to her, you know, look, I, I'm kind I'm a straight shooter kind of person, respectfully. So um, is, is there any challenge, any problem with that type of communication? Because I just want to make sure that they understand that that's my nature, and it will come from a place of care and concern for sure. And so we have have that initial dialogue and then um like i have a mentee i have a, a mentoring meeting here coming after uh, later on today i'm so ex i get excited when i get ready to talk to my mentees too but then we just have dialogue and a lot of times scotty they'll either share a challenge that they're faced with and kind of uh get my perspective what i try to lean away from is saying oh you should do xyz i i lean away from that because they're not me right and so but what i try to do is listen to them have them say well what do you i'll ask them what do you think about that what was your approach and why was that your approach and then i'll say well what about this perspective or what about that so i i try to just kind of give them um not really advice but just help them reflect right from a different perspective and a lot of times i'll get you i see the light bulb come on and like oh 
oh, I understand now why I probably shouldn't have done that. And I should, thank you so much. It, it's that, right? But I, I rarely know, I say never say, oh, here, I've got the solution. And you start here and you do this. You, no, I just think that's just not the right approach for Linda. Uh, as I said, because I try to respect each person's individuality, where they've come from, their lived experiences, what they've learned, and then go from there. And we really build really good relationships uh, above and beyond the mentorship, I find, you know, and and you you mentioned something that I'll close with and, and turn it over to Cheryl. A lot of my mentees are younger than me uh, and my team members are younger than me. And I learned so much from them. And even when I say to them, oh my gosh, you know, I just, and it's like, you're learning from me. I'm like, absolutely, you know, and I do. I mean, it's just, you know, cause they have so much different type of depth of knowledge and experience that's invaluable, especially in today's day and age. But that's my approach for mentoring. Yeah, my approach is similar and I agree. I think everyone should be a mentor and everyone should be mentored, right? And as a mentor, you do learn so much, you know, and there's this thing called reverse mentoring. Some companies have formal programs that, you know, involve reverse mentoring because it also helps executives that may not have had that different lived experience of what some of the obstacles and barriers are. And at that level, at the executive level, they're the ones that have the ability to make those systemic changes. So I think that can be really valuable. Um, my approach to mentoring is similar, as I said, you know, I wanna know what the, the perceived gaps are of the person, you know, like on a, an emotional or psychological level, but I also wanna know where have they been? I think people tend to underestimate their experiences and backgrounds and, and uh, how some of those skills that they've picked up over the years are transferable maybe to looking to new opportunities. So I'm, I'm looking for where is somebody selling themselves short? And then where do you wanna go? And is it realistic? Um, I had someone share this tool with me. It started off on a piece of paper being handwritten. It then went to Excel and then I made it like a, a fillable PDF but it's called the building block discussion. And so you're looking at, you know, your basic educational background at the bottom, you know, what, what have you had in terms of your degrees? How many languages can you speak? What professional certifications do you have? What have been your roles? You know, and a, a great way to organize all of your different roles, looking at the functional areas that you've had. And then where do you want to go? What are you doing now? And is it realistic for me to get to where, where I want to go with those building blocks I already have in place? And then get feedback on what are those missing areas? What are those building blocks that I need to go fill in? Um, so I encourage people to go out and get feedback from executives, you know, throughout their leadership team or other mentors who may be a little bit more senior um, and understand that career path and what's really required to advance. Um, I find too many women are selling themselves short. They don't feel like they can be a leader, um, should be a leader. And so I really work hard to convince them that we need them. I remember when I got my first leadership position and I was sitting at the table with my new peers and I was like, really? I thought you all had it all figured out. <laughs> And I think, you know, we, we just, we think, oh, they're just so much smarter, but we need all voices at the table. I just wrote that down, the building block discussion, because <sighs> that is so good. That's so good. I literally, I'm doing that exercise as soon as we're off this call. <laughs> I love it. So I want to take the conversation now another direction, a much more somber 
direction. And that is the um, political crossfire that DEI is in right now. Um, as we all know, there are companies that are backing off of their DEI pledges that came out of the, um, the uh, George Floyd killing in Minneapolis in 2020. And, and many other, many other, I mean, we're compounded by um, some really horrible things going on in our world. And so there's been, there have been companies that had that, their reaction was to double down on DEI. Um, and uh, whether or not that was a good move for the company or whether or not that was an appropriate um, social reaction to what was going on in our country then, uh, you know, who knows, but um, many of these companies now are under pressure and as well as our universities and many of our state governments are passing laws that are saying that DEI can no longer be funded or shouldn't be a priority. So um, why don't you both tell me sort of, I'd really like to know what your feelings are on this. Do you feel under attack? Do you feel like this is misguided? guided and maybe we'll go away? Is it, tell me what you think. Yeah, well, I, I could tell you that, I mean, it does very much feel like an attack. And and, and it's sad to say what I'm about to say, uh, but it's not a new attack. Um, it's just a different one. Um, and it's extremely sad and unfortunate uh, that no matter what is transpired, no matter what simple gains occur, a movement in a certain direction happens that that gives this impression that uh, one group of people are winning and another group of people are losing, uh, that then we got to make sure that we wipe that win out, you know, it just, you know, because that just can't happen. And that's far from the situation. It's not a win-loss, right? But it's just because that's tapped into that psyche, then we have this and and it's it, it's extremely unfortunate i will say you know when i saw all the, the stuff happening after 2020 with the new chief diversity officer announcements everywhere and the linkedin you know all the you know inside of me said okay this is um you know how long is this gonna last you know because it's i, I didn't really believe it to be frank you know i didn't really believe it but in that lack of belief i was also hopeful that maybe, maybe it's unfortunate that that life had to be lost, you know, so visibly and, and cruel as it was. But but maybe that, you know, if nothing else in history made the difference, maybe that will. And that, you know, okay, Linda, although you sort of don't believe it, I'm going to hang on to some hope that, you know, it will make a difference and we won't turn around. Well, now we're here in 2024 and uh, the, you know, the reverse. Uh, and all the actions to to drive things in the reverse are just so heightened and 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 with such vitriol, it's just um, it, it just it, it hurts my heart. and it, it is a level of attack. <clears throat> I will tell you though that I'm still a glass half full person, and I know numerous people in my network that are. And if that means we have to do the small work that we do within our space, and as far as we, as we can reach, so we're still going to do it. You know, we're still going to exercise, obviously, our right to vote until that's taken away. But, you know, we're going to do that in addition to like the T, the after extra effort, 
prepare black and brown women, uh, you know, help them understand who they are personally is, who they are professionally. So, and then when you understand that bridge the gap and you show up, irrespective of the system. I mean, if I can do it as a person born in the 60s, you can definitely do it born in the 2000s and beyond. So we've all said, hey, we're still going to we're still going to be out here for the fight and we're still going to do our part, whatever that is, uh, to keep the direction, even if it's slow and arduous, moving where we know it needs to go, where we all are supposed to be created equal. You know, it just where the equity exists and that, you know, we can all show up in our in our greatness and it doesn't take away from the next person sitting next to us who might not look at us, look like us. Um, but yes, you know, to answer your question, it, yeah, it's an, it's an attack, uh, but it's not one we should as, you know, as Americans uh, just let happen. And I'll add, I'll make this last point. I travel the world globally. I have a global team and I, it, it, it warms my heart and at the same time is a bit like, wow, we're supposed to be the leaders of the free world, right? But I travel around and I have people on my teams around the world look at me and like, Linda, you know, what country are you in? You know, how is that happening in the US of all places? You know, they just, they have a hard time. They said, we understand our challenges, right? But how is that happening in the US? And why is that happening? And what are you guys going to do? And and what can we do if, you know, I'm in Italy or I'm here or I'm there? So uh, so that that warms my heart and at the same time also fuels me to, you know, continue to do the work as an American who's proud to be one and believes that, you know, that this can be different. It definitely can be and it should be different. So good, Linda. So good. Um, you know, I, I want to touch on what you shared about this zero sum game mentality, yeah. right? If I win, someone else is losing. It's it's human nature. And when I when I first got into this work, even just advocating for women when I was still in my corporate role, I was confused about the backlash. You know, the people who wanted to push against this and 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 tell me that I was just making up the you know the experience that I was having of feeling left out and underestimated in all of that. So I've, I've come to learn that this is human nature. You know, think about when you were a kid and if you had a sibling, you're looking next to you saying, oh, her sandwich is bigger than mine or she's got more cookies than me, right? Um, but it's like, how do we rise above that? So I really did think we were rising above that um, uh, in the summer of 2020. I, I think there was a, definitely a racial reckoning, but I, I underestimated that anti-DEI movement, right? That's always been there. And so I look at the movement as a continuum. You've got the anti-DEI people who are on this side. Then you've got people who are just confused, right? And they hadn't thought much about it, but they're starting to hear all this stuff in the, the political environment and in the news. And they're like, huh, you know, and they're, they're maybe believing some of these misconceptions out there. Then you've got the person in the middle who's like, take it or leave it. I'm just trying to get my job done. Then you've got people who think this is important, but they just don't know what to do. They're like, tell me what to do. And then you've got the people who actually do know what to do and they're using their power and influence for good, right? And so how do we move people along that continuum? DEI is a very broad and complex topic. I mean, even when you just look at the D, diversity, right? There's so many different dimensions of diversity and some are visible and some are not visible. 
Um, and then you, we've got the inclusion piece, which we've been talking about for a while. This E piece is a little bit new. Um, and I think it's the most powerful piece of it because this is, in my view, what is changing or retooling the systems and the structures that we have in the workplace. So I think that's important. Um, and then the other thing is this work is not done the same way. There's no standards out there for how to do the work. And unfortunately, some people in the past have done the work in a very blaming and shaming way, and that doesn't work, right? So how, how do we like take a step back and, and really look at what can we learn from some of that anti-DEI stuff so that we can make sure everyone has a place to thrive and, and to contribute? Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of what I've been seeing. I am also optimistic. Um, we have a CEO coalition for change and we talk about the, the political environment quite a bit. And the last meeting we just had, one of the CEOs spoke up and said, listen, you have to block out that noise because it is our job as CEOs to be responsible for the sustainability of our workforce. And that means diversifying our workforce. And so he is just like heads down, we're gonna keep going down this road. Um, and I think we need to see more leaders like that. And we need to see more leaders with courage, stand up and speak out about it. I've seen some of that on social media. Um, and then the last thing I'll share is there's a, a, a recruiting company out there um, called Bridge, Bridge Partners. And they just put a barometer survey out. And what they said is 73% of companies are expanding their DEI efforts, only 2% are cutting back. And then 82% of C-suites feel that this DEI thing is more important to be focused on than it was even five years ago. So I am seeing some bright spots. I think we have to meet people where they are. Sometimes that means taking a few steps back to pick up some people, but also realize there's going to be some people that we're never going to change their mind. And we have to understand where the motivation behind all of this is. Right? Is it is it the political fundraising? Like, how do we sort that out and and really don't let that get us down? <laughs> because I will tell you, there is a playbook that the anti DEI people have. We need to be just as strategic. What's our playbook? So let me ask you this, because I do think that a lot of the anti whatever it is, if it's anti DEI or you know whatever the the counter to a popular movement is it all it generally comes from people who feel left out or stepped over or passed yeah. over or um uh feel that the uh the movement is impacting their ability to yeah. do their job right or to live their life and um and i'm my guess is that there's some some of those buttons are being pushed here and then there's probably some truth to that and i do worry um, I don't have sons, but I do have a lot of friends who have sons, and I do worry about um, where, you know, all of these efforts for women, especially people of color, people of different cultural backgrounds, LGBTQ, where are we leaving these young men or these men who maybe grew up in a, you know, cultural idea that, oh, well, I'm going to be the breadwinner and I'm going to be the leader. And now they're kind of told, no, you can't, or it's going to be much harder for you to do that because now you have to compete against, you used to have to only compete against the boys in the class. Now you got to compete against the entire class. So what do we do 
as DEI advocates, as advocates for everyone, to make sure that we're not alienating anyone. Yeah, you know, that's what I meant by sometimes it's slowing down and going back to get people because I think some people have been left out of this conversation. It should be no one left behind. So let's find out, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, maybe someone coming from a rural area, someone who's a disabled Vietnam vet, right? There's so many things to look at here and just make sure that we're considering everything. So conversations can be really helpful here. Um, that That's what I would say. Linda? Yeah, totally agree with that. And and that maybe education through what you do, Cheryl, making sure that in companies like yours, yes, let's make sure we reach back and, and not forget anyone, but let's teach people how to have the dialogue because yeah. it shouldn't be the young man believing that it's bad that he's competing against everyone in the room. Uh, there is not, that that that's taught as if that's negative. And so I think maybe helping people with how to have the conversation, how to educate at home, and then the conversations that take place in other settings, I think that's extremely important uh, that I've not seen yet, frankly, is, is how to have these conversations in a way where alienation is not the end result or it's not the feeling along the conversation route, right? And that's because it's, it, it, you're absolutely right, Scotty, that's what's going to happen and that's what has happened. And this is why we have the the discord that we have is because, you know, it's it's touching those individuals personally and and they just can't handle that. So I think it's having a different call, different, different conversation and opening up our minds and perspectives. And to your point, Cheryl, we're not gonna be, everyone's not gonna come to the table to that. But I believe there's um, more of a majority of people that will than we than we know. You know, again, that's my glass half full person coming out, right? So like, yeah. Um, yeah, so so yeah. am I. Optimism is uh, it's it sometimes maybe a flaw, um, or at least for me. Um, oh, I agree. <laughs> two quick questions because we are way past the the time that I had allotted for this, and I don't want to take. I appreciate so much you both being here. Um, Cheryl, talk quickly about allyship. That is one way that people who are already in that position and uh, want to open a door can do that. What makes a good ally? And what should people look for in an ally? Well, I think a good ally is somebody who is using their power and influence um, for good. Um, and it's not like a badge that you wear. You're not an ally unless somebody says you're an ally, right? You can't just call yourself an ally. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's, you know, those leaders who are using their positional uh, authority or their influence, you know, there's all kinds of different power here to make changes for good. You know, it could be um, acting as a sponsor for someone, you know, um, someone who's in that room or at a table you're not yet at and they're advocating for you. Um, I think it's the little things like maybe speaking up in a meeting where someone is getting overtalked or interrupted. Um, but it, it means having a relationship with that person you're advocating for, being an ally for, and, and making sure it's, um, it's what that person wants too. Sometimes people overstep a little bit and they think they have to speak for someone else. And, you know, they're, they're out there like, look at me, look what I did. You have to make sure that person is willing to receive that help. So 
you know, I look for someone who's generous and um, who is going to advocate for good. And then, Linda, I'm going to direct this next question to you um, because being there's a, a saying that we've seen a lot, we've heard a lot lately or in the last what, 15, 10 or 10 years or so, if you can see her, you can be her. Um, a, a phrase that has very much defined my life and how I do my job. Um, and I believe that visibility is the, absolutely the most important thing. So along that line, what advice do you have for people to sort of attract new people to their industry, to their field, uh, to demonstrate that this is what I do, this is who I am, my job is great, my life is great, this is a really wonderful field or a wonderful company. What advice do you have for people in terms of visibility? How do I create that? Mm, that's a great question, Scotty, because I love the phrase, if you see, if you can see her, you can be her, because I believe it's so true. Right, um, but I never saw her, but I still became her. So I wanna make sure that people you know, understand that if you still don't see it, don't lose that dream. Uh, I, I think what's important, how can we do that? One, and I'm gonna speak to other people that may be listening that look like me, uh, because I find some of us aren't really open to reaching across, reaching out, and I think we should be. You know, uh, I, I have a saying to who much is given, much is required, right? And so if I've been blessed, although had to work to get to here, of course, right? And, and all the other things, but I've been blessed to get to this seat. I'm gonna make sure, for instance, when you reached out, invited me to this, oh my gosh, what an opportunity, right? For someone to see me and to be and to talk about this if i ever if you get an opportunity to have whatever stage or platform take that if you are at a company and they're looking for mentors raise your hand and allow the young people to get to know you so that they can see you and realize what's possible um there's so many vehicles to allow us to be present right we just have to want to be present as women in this industry number one. And then if you're a woman of color, you know, there's so many vehicles, but it comes from inside of your desire and passion to help others. And I think that's really where it comes from. You know, as I said, you know, going through my career, I didn't see someone that looked like myself, but it didn't, it didn't prevent me. Um, I had an uncle who, who helped me along, who I patterned after. But as I went through my experiences and met other people whether it was a Cheryl that I met at a conference or if it was someone else that I met other places, I latched onto that. And that's what let me know, oh my gosh, this is possible. What I'm dreaming inside, what I, what I believe inside for myself is very possible. So those are all the different avenues that I would implore someone to take. And I know I've had clients say, oh, Linda, you know, you can talk to anybody, you're outgoing, whatever. I'm not, I don't, you know, I, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I, I kind of don't let them, <laughs> I don't give them a pass on the introvert side. I'm like, okay, I get it. But, you know, it, just try in a small little setting. You'd be surprised if you connect with one person, what that could do for you. And then they introduce you to the next and so forth. Uh, but I do, as I, as I close, Scotty, I think there's, there's an onus and responsibility on us who should be seen to allow ourselves to be seen. I totally agree. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Linda and Cheryl, for joining me today to talk about DEI, to talk about 
breaking out of your bo- out of that box that maybe you have been put in as a child or by society and yeah. and challenging the status quo and and building your dream because that really is what is so rewarding and so fun and uh those challenges are great and we're and i will say i haven't been in the automotive industry as long as either of you but i find it to be a wonderful place filled with really incredible people and i'm grateful yeah. yes it's yes. been an honor scotty thank you so much thank yes you. thank you so much thank you ladies take care Wow, I am just blown away by these ladies and I can't wait to have more of these conversations with Cheryl and Linda and others. It's very refreshing to know that DEI is alive and well and that there's room for all of us, for those who can see themselves in these places naturally and those who see the opportunity and want to be in the room, want to be on the team there's room for everybody. I think there's one brand, General Motors, their tagline is everybody in. And that's really what the automotive industry is all about. And it's refreshing to hear that conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for What Drives Her, the podcast that talks to women and people who are changing the automotive industry from the inside. What Drives Her is a production of A Girl's Guide to Cars. Hosts include me, Scotty Reese, and Connie Peters, who couldn't be here today. Edited by our editor, Steph Howard. Music by Envato Elements. Please follow follow along, share the podcast with others who might be interested. Don't miss an episode and we'll see you next time on What Drives Her.